Today's episode is brought to you by Slay House Publishing, recorded at Wayne Howard Studios. Welcome back to another episode of Slay House Presents. I'm your host, Caitlin, and with me, as always, is my partner and my best friend, Trevor. I like I like I like that I'm your partner and your best friend. That makes me feel really good inside. It you, should. For what it's worth, you're my partner and my best friend too. Yeah. Every day. Every day. Every day. Always. Mm-hmm. 100% of the time since I met you basically. Yeah. Almost 12 years ago. Yeah. We had an epic first date. We did. It was that was a long first date. 8 hours. Yeah. I just didn't want to be out outside of your company, like, at all. Look down at our watch and, like, shit, it's been eight hours. I know. It, it felt like it flew by because we were su- only supposed to have coffee together. Yeah. Like that, that was... then, then we had coffee, and then I ordered dessert, and then we were like, well, crap, I'm kind of hungry. Let's go have dinner. So then we had dinner. Yeah. And then we had some wine. And we had wine. And then we walked around the square and looked at the lights because it was Christmas time. Uh-huh. Yeah. We then, also we went to a bookstore together. Then we went to the Dixon Street Bookstore, and I read you poetry. You read me poetry. You were the only woman I've ever, ever known to take me on a first date and read poetry to me. Because I'm badass like that. It was it was really uh, excellent. I, I, it only hit me in retrospect that all of the poetry you read me was about having sex. <laughs> was it? <laughs> Yes. What did I read you? I don't remember. It was like a, a lot of John Donne. Was it John Donne? <laughs> I'm pretty sure, yeah. That does, it does. I do like John Donne. So that, that yeah. does surprise me. Yeah, it was like, it was surprisingly horny poetry. And uh, and I didn't pick up on it at the time. But in retrospect, I was like, y- you had a lot of really horny poems to read to me <laughs> on that first date. <laughs> Oh, I was just reading what I had picked up over the years. I think I got into John Dunn in high school, so shame on my high school English split teacher for <laughs> <laughs> teaching me horny poetry. Uh, yeah, you wouldn't get away with that in Florida today, would you? No. Yeah. Get rid no. of that pornography. <laughs> we would never, if not for your... your <laughs> horny high school poetry we probably would never have you know had like a a date number two oh wait did i read you the flea yes that is a sexy poem (laughs) (laughs) yes you did yeah that was a that was one of them that you read to me you were you but you had a whole ton of them you had uh at at least like three or four different horny poems that you wanted to read me hmm yeah, it was it was a really funny. And then as we were leaving, uh, we were heading to to dinner, and uh, that was after dinner. No, I'm I'm pretty. I thought I thought it was before dinner. Well, either way, we when we were leaving, I asked you to hold my hand, and you refused to. And I thought I was like, oh, okay. I gu- I guess we're not there yet. I was just shy. <laughs> I was just trying to. I was like, I don't know how to date. Do we hold? Do we hold hands? Is that a thing? And do then, we... then you were a gentleman and said, "Can I put my arm around you instead?" Yeah, that's right. And you said yes. Yeah. Yeah, it worked out. 
But then we were exclusive after that date. So. I, we were. It was like the next day I found you in a Hobby Lobby parking lot. And I was like, I, we go together now, I guess. Well, let's clarify for our listeners. You didn't find me in a parking lot lost. No, no, no. <laughs> we just happened to be there at the same time. And like just kind of spontaneously. It was like I was going for school supplies. You were going for decorations for your grandparents. And uh, I was like, oh, uh, how, how interesting, how serendipitous. Well, let's just we'll go in together. And from that moment forward, we were just, that was it. We were done. Yeah. We belonged to each other. Here we are. Thank you, horny high school poetry <laughs> for that. Ooh. And now the news. This is my favorite transition. And now the news. <laughs> Hit me with some news. I want to hear your news. What's new? My news? Yeah, what's new? I thought you were doing the news. Oh, okay. I guess I'll do the news. Uh, hey, there's a brand new publisher that just got announced in the last couple of weeks. Uh, Bramble is a new imprint from Tor one of the the bigger genre publishers in science fiction and fantasy, um, published our good friend Marina Lostetter, who just Mm -hmm. had a book release in Mm -hmm. the last week. Um, That was super. uh, This is my little bit of news um, aside from Bramble, but but I actually got to go up and see Marina Lostetter for a book signing. I was so sad I couldn't go with you. I know. uh, But you were bodybuilding out in... Uh, St. Louis. No, I was watching bodybuilding. Well, you were, okay, you were out watching people build bodies <laughs> in St. Louis. So, um, but, but yeah, I got to go to, to a book signing with Marina Lostetter and it was, it was just super fun. And um, I got a couple of books signed from her and uh, it was just a, a really great time. And I really hope that her new book, uh, The Cage of a Dark Hours, which is the second in the five penalties series, uh, I hope that book's doing well. Um, I was really excited to pick up my copies. So, you excited to read it? I, of course, I'm excited to read it. Yeah, I loved Helm of Midnight. Um, it's such an interesting uh, fantasy novel, and I really want to see where she kind of expands on this world. You know, the, I feel like the sequel is always the the place where you really start to flesh out. You know, the rest of the universe. Um, around your main characters. And so with all of the concepts she introduces in that first book, I'm really excited to see uh, what more she develops from that. So, yeah, I'm really excited to read the book. I am going to do a reread of Helm of Midnight before I I dive in because I want to make sure that I'm, like, fresh on everything Mm -hmm. Uh, because that was, like, 60 books ago. <laughs> it was a ways ago. It was a ways ago. So I want to make sure that I'm I'm refamiliarized with the whole universe, but yeah, I'm I'm very much looking forward to it. That's good. Yeah. But Bramble is the new subsidiary of Tor. Uh, Nightfire, uh, just a couple of years ago, was their new horror book imprint, and this one is a romance book imprint. I'm so I, excited. I'm actually excited too. I was I w- I've been sharing, you know, I've bought every single Nightfire book that has come out. Uh every single one of them. And I will keep doing so until our house sinks into 
a pit or something. It will. <laughs> under the weight of the books. It will. <laughs> but I was like, uh, with Bramble, I have a feeling that you're going to end up buying every single one of these romance books, too. The and first being JLA. Yes. I, I want you to talk about it because I don't know anything about it. But um, I'm, I'm kind of excited, too, because I'm like, this might be the thing that gets me into reading more romance with you. Yeah, her book, you said, was the first one that they're publishing? The first book they are putting out in August is by Jennifer L. Armentrout. Yeah, I saw it on Instagram today. She posted it. It's called Fall of Ruin and Wrath, and it looks so pretty. Oh, my gosh. That is a killer cover. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't. I know this is a, a weird moment where we're talking about how cool a cover is on and a nobody podcast. Can nobody it, can see it, but you can gorgeous. you can look this book up. It's got a blue cover with a sword and looks like some kind of wings around the sword in the middle. Um that looks striking. Yeah. And fitting for Tor. Yeah. I don't know. I didn't look up the details of it. I kind of want to be surprised. I, but with, with, they gave us a clue. It's, it says she lives by her intuition. He feeds on her pleasure. Ooh. Like a sexy sex vampire. Something. Okay. I don't know, but I was like, hmm, paint or color me intrigued. We could we could get into that. Mm-hmm. I could get into that. Yeah. Yeah. Very fun. Well, you know, I never read uh, a blurb if I don't have to. Like, I, like, I'm vibes only over here. So if your book puts out cool vibes, like, I'm, I'm down. I'm going to go for yeah. it for sure. And I think that Bramble is going to be a really interesting publisher because I have a feeling they're not just going to do standard, you know, bodice rippers. I have a feeling that they're going to have a lot of spicy uh, romance, but I think it's going to be like spicy genre romance. Yeah, I actually started following them on Instagram today. Mm. Um, They kind of popped up when I was scrolling because of JLA. And it said they're going to have books of like all spice levels. Yeah, okay. So kind, of, right. kind of represent everybody. It's so. kind of like what Nightfire has been doing with horror. You know, they have some some horror, which is more, uh, I, I don't even want to call it middle of the road, but it, it's more, you know, kind of commercial horror. Um, and then they have some stuff that's just like peel your face off. Like, this is so truly fucked horror. <laughs> <laughs> and I like both, you know. Yeah. I like it when, when uh, the horror stuff is... Um, a little bit uh, quieter, you know, a little bit more claustrophobic, a little yeah. bit more emotional. Uh, and then I like stuff that's really just like, what the fuck did I just read? Yeah. Um, yeah. I, 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 I totally vibe with the, the variety on offer. And I do yeah. think that they're, they're being pretty progressive for a major uh, commercial publisher. You know, they've had several um, trans authors. They are not afraid of taking on really important political uh, conversations, I think. And uh, that's refreshing to see in a, a commercial publisher because they are so risk risk averse most of the time. Right. Yeah. Um, and instead, it feels like they're really just steering into, you know, is this a good story? Is this. Uh, a provocative or, or transgressive story is this interesting uh, and they're publishing just all kinds of stuff I think it's great yeah yeah so Bramble that's awesome super excited yeah you said you had another book that you were excited about that's kind of coming around. yes it's coming out I want to say I know it's September oh that's 
I keep clicking a picture. I took an, a picture of an Instagram, and I'm clicking the picture. <laughs> <laughs> There's a reason it's not clicking, because it's an Instagram <laughs> shot. My ding dong. Um, it's like September 15th or something. Um, uh-huh. You remember my special editions... Um, you remember those um, books that came after uh, Caraval? They were the spinoffs, um, Once Upon a Broken Heart and The Ballad of Never After. Okay. Um, I haven't read them yet because they've kind of been put on the back burner with all of, like, all oh, the other yeah. stuff. That of I've, course, yeah. Um, but it was uh, one of the villain characters from the Caraval series by oh, Stephanie Garber. Yeah. He got his own uh, storyline. Right, okay. Anyway, book three... Um, a Curse for True Love. It's the third and final in the series. Wow. It's coming out in September. Ooh, okay. All right. So, you remember my I do. special I editions. I do remember that, yeah. So, yeah, the third one is coming. Very excited about those. Yep. I love when a series actually concludes, because I always make the presumption it's just never going to, you mm-hmm. know, like we're never going to see the end of the Game of Thrones, right? Yeah. So, I'm never going to start Game of Thrones, because I know it's never going to end, <laughs> right? Um, so I'm, I'm always excited when I hear like, and this is the last book in the trilogy. It's like, oh, thank God. <laughs> thank God. <you're laughs> you, ma- you made it. <laughs> you finished. Uh, now maybe I can get invested, right? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I've got a lot of, uh, really fun news. I'm at least, well, I think it's fun. I think it's exciting. Uh, J.B. McLaurin's Black Echoes is out March 1st from Slay House. Uh, that's just around the corner. If you're listening to this this week, uh, that's just next week. That's like next Wednesday. Mm-hmm. So um, as we're recording this, you know, we're we're only a week away from this book coming out. And I think it's going to be really, really exciting. Um, if, if you're into dark stories of addiction and probably dudes who murder people and stuff them like a tiger... Um, yeah, this is a this is probably your kind of fucked up book. I really think it'll be a very interesting one, um, and it's certainly very unlike I think the other stuff that that Slay House has done so far. We've got two books coming out in the next couple of months that uh, I think are really gonna shake up you know what what Slay House is doing. Um, some other stuff that's coming out though. Loteria by um, Sina Pelayo uh, from Agora Books. That just came out. is a collection of short fiction um, based on a game that a lot of um, Latinx kids, you know, have played in their youth. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it is going to be a really cool collection. This is previously published. I've not read it yet, but I really love Sina Pelayo's stuff. Um, I know that she has a real eye for for critically um, kind of talking about uh, stuff, you know, politics, social politics um, in her work. So I'm really interested in seeing some of the themes and topics that she tackles in this particular book as it's re-released. And the re-released cover is just beautiful. It's really colorful and um just really well designed, a very sleek cover. We also have um, She is a Haunting by Trang Tan Tran. Um, I, I apologize if I've mispronounced that, uh, but that comes out February 28th from Bloomsbury YA. I think it was just selected as Barnes & Noble's 
young adult read of the month for either March or for April. It might be March. I think it's the March book. Mm-hmm. Um, but either way, this is a really interesting um, kind of a, a haunting story. Um, she did an episode with uh, Agatha Andrews over on the She Wore Black podcast. Mm-hmm. That was a really, really cool episode. So um, actually put this book on my radar and now I'm going to go read it because I, I think that books are cool. And um, yeah, I like books. Mothered by Zoya Stage is coming out um, March 1st from Thomas and Mercer. Um, that's another book. I don't even know what the book's about. I just have seen the cover. It's got scissors, and scissors are always menacing. Um, but I actually read Baby Teeth by Zoya Stage, uh, mm-hmm. I think either a year ago or two years ago. And I really enjoyed that book. Um, it was about... Uh, uh, well, it's it's about a mom and a child who is trying to kill her mother, and uh, and the mom is desperate to be believed by a father who doesn't believe that the child could be that bad. Um, harrowing book. <laughs> I feel like I remember you telling me about that book. <clears throat> yeah, it it had some ideas that I felt were very familiar to that kind of subgenre of horror. Um, William March, I think, wrote The Bad Seed back in the 50s, which is a similar book, like a child who's just evil and nobody could believe that a child could be evil, Mm -hmm. right? Um, Big, some interesting questions just about how we we conceive of um, evil, how we conceive of... of, Children. um, (laughs) Just, yeah, just children, you know, just children in general. They're not all innocent people. (laughs) <laughs> right. <laughs> and it begs the question, you know, why is it that we presume that all children are innocent? And what is scary about a child who isn't so innocent, right, that maybe has some knowledge that they shouldn't have, like how to murder a person? Um, it was an interesting book, and I I really just kind of flew through it. Um, I haven't read much of her stuff outside of that, uh, which I will be fixing in the next couple of weeks. Uh, but this is a book that's coming out in March, and I am really excited to get my copy of it. I've already pre-ordered a copy. so. And then we have Every Woman Knows This by Laurel Hightower uh, coming out March 3rd from Death Knell Press. Uh, I have read this one already. Uh, Laurel was super, super kind and sent me an advance review copy um, ahead of the episode that we were we recorded with her. Um, if you haven't listened to that episode, it's in our feed now. You can go back. It was last week that we released it. Um, Laurel's amazing. And uh, having that conversation was just such a highlight of this month so far. <laughs> and uh, this book is absolutely phenomenal. It's a collection of her short fiction. Um, and a lot of her stuff, you know, deals with the um, kind of day-to-day experiences of uh, a woman and kind of focuses on um, the many, you know, ex- experiences that a, a woman might have in a world that is not always very kind to women. Mm-hmm. Um, and so she she has uh, a very kind of feminist um, look at these experiences uh, and I think writes some interesting and transgressive um, fiction. 
it's really good stuff. Uh, some stories that just totally blew me away. It's one of the best collections I think I've ever read as a, you know, from a, a debut collection. Um, wonderful. So you can get that March 3rd. And then uh, The Trees Grew Because I Bled There by Eric LaRocca comes out March 7th from Titan Books. And I've already pre- I pre-ordered this like last September. <laughs> Um, I'm really excited about this. You know how I feel about Eric's uh, Mm -hmm. work. We talked about it a couple episodes back. And uh, I think this one is going to be really cool, too. It's a collection of his short fiction. Um, Most of it, I think, republished. Again, most of his stuff... um, Excuse me. Most of his stuff was um, picked up by Titan you know, around the same time. So this is kind of a reissue of some of his older stuff uh, that I'm still extraordinarily excited about. So those are the books that are on the horizon. I did find some other interesting stuff in the news, though, and I kind of want to bring it up to you um, because there are two different conversations going on right now. Um, One conversation, and they're not necessarily related, but one conversation has uh, to do with what we do with suggestive content in media. Okay. So the the controversy, if it can even be called that, because I don't know how many people are really ranting about it, more than one for sure, Um, but they're kind of talking about these extreme cases of um, whether or not we should be allowing for uh, suggestive content in our media. Should we have a sex scene in a book? Should we have a sex scene in a movie? Who are those scenes for? And uh, what do they really contribute to our edification? So there's a whole camp of people who believe that we should not have suggestive content once whatsoever, right? That uh, any suggestive content, any s- depictions of sex, um, is uh, potentially, you know, triggering to uh, asexual people or aromantic people. Um, Those people don't have to read the books. Right. Or this this idea that, uh, that you know, you go into a book and then there's a surprise sex scene. Like, you, you the book isn't advertised as have, having sex. And so it's like, I didn't consent to this sex scene appearing in this book. And then to go real extreme, there have been some hot takes that are like, uh, can fictional characters even consent in the first place when we are watching a sex scene in a movie or when we are reading a sex scene in a book, we are acting as the voyeurs, right, um, in this experience. And these couples having sex did not consent to us watching their romantic liaisons. So I kind of want <laughs> I can see your face. I kind of want to throw this out. Like, how do we feel about suggestive content in, in literature? You know, what is the point of having suggestive content in our media? What do we do with it? You're literally asking somebody who reads much 24-7. <laughs> Yes, <laughs> this is this is why I brought it up. 
Because I, I wanted to know from the girl who basically reads porn. Yes. I want to know, what's your take on this? Well, as I told you, because I think we talked about this the other day when you brought up the absurdity of, you know, the, the characters on movies, you know, they can't consent. And I'm like, they're fucking characters. <laughs> And I was like, the actors are consenting by being in the movie. And sure. you, you argued, well, the characters themselves. And I'm like, they're fucking fictional. <laughs> they don't they're they don't up. have a conscience. I mean they're mm. like, no, well, but that also begs a question. Does does art exist on its own merits? No. I mean I, I mean this this big like comes back to a very different philosophical question. We don't need to get philosophical about this. I mean... <laughs> like, literally, when I am reading my smut, I'm not worried if those characters in the back of their little fake imaginary brains are thinking, <laughs> is anybody watching this right now? <laughs> Good Lord, I hope nobody is, is actually, like, watching and enjoying this. Like... We could we could get real metaphysical here. We're not getting mes- metaphysical here. Like, <laughs> I can assure you that me and all the other hundreds of thousands of women across <laughs> this nation that read smut every day of our lives are not worried about these fucking characters because it's fiction. They're not real. So just so my argument to these people is, grow the fuck up. <laughs> Like, find a hobby. (laughs) Like, stop being a fucking prude. Like, I'll use the logic that we use. Like, if you're, number one, like I just said, don't read the fucking book. But, like, if you're, number one, don't read a romance book. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Because it's going to have a fucking sex scene in it. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And number two, I can almost, I mean, if you're, you can pretty much guarantee, like, what am I trying to say? If you pick up a fiction book, uh-huh. if it's got any kind of romance uh-huh. in in any but, kind of detail, uh-huh. it might have a little but, bit of. But a sex what about scene. the stuff that, like, you know, we go in for a uh, for a, a spy thriller or something, right? Something. What that are the we, odds? We that don't. It... Right. What are the odds that? So you go into a spy thriller thinking like. Well, I'm just going to be reading about spies, and then all of a sudden it's like, boom, sex scene. You know, it's like, well, ooh, not, that was suggestive. Not every spy book is going to be a fucking James Bond movie with girls with their titties out. I mean, <laughs> that's very true. I mean. I'm not saying, but but I mean, what happens if you're the reader and all of a sudden you're not looking for suggestive content. And well, then, then you, you stumble across suggestive maybe content. You it's like, should, well, why did that have to be in there? Why, maybe you should be reading books out of the Christian fiction section then. Oh, my God. The Bible is full of sex. Are you kidding me? I'm talking about like Christian did, Doesn't Noah get romance. naked in front of his kids? And, and Probably. Yeah, yeah. And they're like ashamed of his nudity because he's I'm running just, around hanging brain. I'm just saying, like, just because there's. Lot gave his daughters up to get raped by, like, the crazy people of his town that that wanted to... They wanted to rape angels. And Lot was like, hey, maybe don't rape the angels. I'll let you rape my daughters, though. Eh, That's not the same. 
Yeah. So I'm, I'm, I'm just saying, like, you can't go to the Bible to, to, to hide from suggestive content. I wasn't necessarily saying the Bible. I'm talking about, like, the romance books in the Christian section where, like, they don't freaking hold hands or kiss until they get married. Oh, like, that's but that's that's especially bizarre and definitely not biblical. Let's be real. People in the Bible fucked. <laughs> See, <laughs> there's a whole there's whole passages that are just so and so begat so and so. You know how you begat someone? <laughs> <laughs> you begat. <laughs> you know how children are made, people. <laughs> you know how you begat someone? You have sex. You have sex. I'm just saying. Lots and lots of sex. Here's my t- my take on this because I I know I pose a lot of these like crazy questions, these metaphysical questions, for the sake of just being out there, right? I think art is supposed to imitate human life. And humans have a lot of sex. And humans fuck, Caitlin. They do. And if you're not having sex, it's because you're a prude. I mean, I, I mean I, I'm not going to cast any... Or you're asexual. And you know what? That's fine. Be I'm asexual. Gonna, I'm not going to cast any aspersions but on anybody who doesn't have trying sex. trying to take it out of our media I, and I our books. I think that's where I come from. It's like, I, I don't know how we want to... Why Why do we have to police this so yeah. hard? It's like, you do you, boo. Right. Stop trying to police me and my porn. <laughs> Seriously. <laughs> just, let me, just let me do my stuff. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I d- yeah, I I don't come down on this weird prudish notion that uh, we should only have pure pure or purified media. I think we've been telling stories about people boning for forever. You know, uh, I teach world literature to, and I'm sure they're sexing a oh lot. Oh my god, of it. I, that's where I'm going. I teach world literature to 1650 and some of the earliest stuff that we we look at, Egyptian love poems, mm-hmm. all about fucking each other. Uh, but we also read Gilgamesh. Do you know how Gilgamesh? <laughs> this is this is a, you know what the problem with with Gilgamesh is in the beginning? Why couldn't why keep, couldn't keep it in his pants? Yeah, why why Gilgamesh like like everybody ha- hates Gilgamesh in the beginning and they complain to the gods. They're like, you really got to do something about this guy. One of the reasons is because he's going around and having sex with virgins before their before their their uh, marriage or their their wedding ceremonies, yeah. right? Uh, that that whole idea of prima noctis, right? Uh, the the king's right to go have a sex have sex with any virgin he wants uh, before they get married. Uh, that comes from Gilgamesh. I don't believe that that was actually a, a social practice. I think it's just something in Gilgamesh. But Gilgamesh was absolutely going around and and having sex with uh, people, perhaps a, against their their wishes. I don't even know that that consent was involved. Um, which makes him a pretty bad dude. Mm-hmm. And so they complain to the gods and they say, hey, um, you know, we really need somebody to come down here and deal with this Gilgamesh dude because he's kind of a, an asshole. And the gods are like, all right, we'll send a beast man. His name is Enkidu. And Enkidu's whole job is like, because he's not of the world of men, he can just, he's feral, right? He'll just fuck somebody up. He'll fuck anybody up who watches. And so Enkidu... Is uh, is born of of the 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 earth, right? He's just born of the kind of animal kingdom. He's just savage and feral, and um, he's scaring a lot of the hunters around uh, Uruk, where Gilgamesh lives. And Gilgamesh hears about this um, this Enkidu guy, and they're like, "You gotta you gotta get out there! This Enkidu guy's crazy." And Gilgamesh is like, mm, "I don't know if I can take an animal guy. Like he's going crazy." 
maybe we can settle him, though. And so he goes and he finds a prostitute named Shamat and says, hey, I need you to go fuck this guy. <laughs> I need you to fuck him so that we can, like, acculturate him to, to human society. And so she goes out and, and they have sex for seven straight days because apparently Enkidu just likes it that much. So a full-on week, they're just boning. And then uh, Enkidu comes in. He has a meal with a couple of people. And he's like, all right, I feel human now. <laughs> <laughs> so what I'm saying is, you know, I think that uh, there's an acknowledgement that, you know, the the – Sexual intimacy is such a, an important part of human socialization and, and social interaction. And it's so fundamental a part of our human lives that we've been writing about it for literal tens of thousands of years. Mm-hmm. And to presume that art needs to be some puerile effort where we erase any kind of sensuality whatsoever I think it's just absolutely bonkers. It's so ridiculous, and it restricts what art can and should be. I feel like art can and should encompass all of human experience. Mm-hmm. And to try to limit art in what it can depict is to be, um, I think, mistruth- mistruthful um, to the entire purpose of art. Yeah. So uh, that was my that was my soapbox number one. Uh, but there's some other weird shit that's been going on lately, and this is the one bit of news that I thought was kind of um, most interesting to me this week. Um, Roald Dahl has been edited by his um, I think his his uh, British publishers. Uh, this is coming from the Wall Street Journal, but um, basically they're saying that uh, his books are being edited in new editions to, quote-unquote, make them more inclusive. So a lot of this stuff that's being changed are some of Roald Dahl's uh, kind of uglier um, assertions about people. He he lays a lot of kind of fat-phobic... Um, uh, Rhetoric. He's very anti-ugly people. Um, he has some very unflattering depictions, I think, of people that can be considered pretty insensitive throughout all of his different books. So a lot of these stories are being edited by the publisher in order to try to make them more palatable to modern sensibilities. And I want to pitch it to you first because I totally have some thoughts. Uh oh, getting a call. Um, but I totally have some thoughts, and I want to hear from you. You know what? Uh, what do you think about this new kind of censorship for inclusivity? Specifically, this author, or just in general? Just in general, like the the precedent that's being set. You know, a publisher coming out and changing an author's work to try to make it more palatable. I definitely, I don't know if I agree with it. Um, I don't, I don't like the idea of changing the original work, especially if it's been here for, I mean, how long have these books been out? Well, I mean, Roald Dahl has been publishing since, uh, 
Uh, you know what? I'm I'm not gonna take a guess. I I feel like 40s and 50s, uh, but certainly, certainly mm. prior to the 1970s, right? Because his stuff was adapted. Like Charlie and the Chocolate Factory has been turned into Willy Wonka. James you know. and the Giant Peach. James and the Giant Peach. Yeah. Books like that. Witches, right? Um, those are are some of the books that have been adapted over the years. So I don't exactly know when this stuff has been written, but but certainly around for decades and decades. I don't know. Like if I tried to think of a book that I grew up with, because those are definitely books that I can remember reading as children. You know, oh yeah. When I was a child, I was obsessed with James and the Giant Peach. Yeah. If I, I mean. I wasn't, like, reading them constantly, but if I tried to think of another series, um, mm-hmm. like, let's say somebody, you know, with all the bullshit going on with uh, yeah. Harry Potter, yeah, with J.K. Rowling. I was, I was totally going to bring up J.K. Rowling. If somebody, you know, wanted to, to edit Harry Potter mm-hmm. because of the stuff she's saying or, you know, some of the stuff she's written, right? I don't necessarily think I would be okay with that. You know, yeah. it's like... Who are you trying to make that more palatable for? Mm. You know? Mm-hmm. It's like, why do you need to change? Yeah. You know, why do you need to change the original? Yeah, I I, I see two sides to this issue, right? The one is that, like, what do you do with, with art that I think is actively harmful, right? What is our duty to that art? Um, because with... With something like Roald Dahl, I think we there's this impulse to get away with it because children still like these books. Yeah. Right? Like, we've we've created whole media adaptations of James and the Giant Peach or Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. You know, like, these have become sort of these cultural mainstays. They're still part of our, our popular consciousness, our popular, mm-hmm. you know, kind of collective um, uh, uh, media. And... So there's there's an impulse to be like, well, you know, a lot of this stuff doesn't look great, right? It's kind of outdated. Maybe we should uh, revise it, you know, so that we're sending the right message. And I understand that effort for inclusivity because I do think that, you know, if we have highly problematic literature and we give it to kids, are we not promoting highly problematic um, attitudes, you know, if a kid reads a book that is extraordinarily fat phobic, what happens to their self-worth if they have, um, you know, a, a self-image problem because of their weight? But did that did those books do that to us, to our generation? I don't know. I, I mean, it's entirely possible. Like, I'm why not, is it now all of a sudden? Well, I, I think that there's a whole industry built around people who, you know, get upset about uh, weight, you know, about their weight. They look at pictures of themselves and they feel like uh, they don't look the way that they want to look. And as a result, are super hard on themselves. I feel like that's an internalized message. Right. And it's not necessarily one that someone has gone up to them and like, you're fat, you cow. Right. But it is something that. You, you pick up on. If a book tells you, like, oh, this person is a bad person, they're big, they're fat, they're ugly. Yeah, I mean, that that makes you feel bad, right? So trying to remove some of those impulses, I, I could see that as being kind of utopian in, in, in longing. This kind of reminds me back when they started, you know, throwing shade at uh, Dr. Seuss. 
It, it it does right, and it's like, and they've removed those books out of out of publication, uh, and and maybe you know what's the cultural legacy of I saw it on Mulberry Street? Yeah, I don't I don't know that that ever had many you know much cultural legs. I don't know that taking them out of print was a bad thing. You know, like Stephen King demanding that rage be taken out of print. What are we really losing by losing that particular text, by letting it fall into the public unconscious and then just, like, just falling out of favor altogether? I don't know how much we would realistically be losing if we just let Charlie and the Chocolate Factory go out of publication altogether. I mean, yeah. I just, I feel like we are in this period of time where we just have these PTA moms that are sitting around with nothing to do because they're stay-at-home moms who, you know, have so much time on their hands because their husbands make all the money. And they're just, like, thinking up new ways, you know, to, (laughs) to change society through the media that their children are consuming. And it's like, unless you can scientifically prove how shit like this, you know, hurt your childhood... Mm. And, like, you know, I don't want my children to grow up to be affected like I was. Mm-hmm. Like, why do you have to change shit? Because your child was probably not aware that Charlie and the Chocolate Factory or James and the Giant Peach were fat phobic until you pointed it out. I mean, that's entirely possible. I also think, though, like I do, <clears throat> again, I, I understand the impulse to try to create inclusive spaces. I think inclusive spaces are important, and I do think that the media messaging matters. But I also think that when we go and sanitize books like this, when we take a book that is problematic and then we revise it to make it unproblematic, I feel like we paint over the genuine issues that existed, right? And and now we've sanitized not just the work, we've sanitized the person. And we've made that problematic stance no longer problematic. It's a kind, it's a form of erasure. It's a form kind of, of like we're censure. erasing slavery from our history. Right, exactly. It, it, it does nothing, I think, to actually allow us to talk about the root causes of these problems. Oh, we're just going to erase it and fix it. It's no more. Bye-bye. Right, exactly. And I think that that, obviously, that's a problem, right? If we erase evil Nazism, right, in an extreme case. And this I know this is a slippery slope argument, but, but seriously, if we go around and just start erasing the problematic stuff from a person's history, right, then what really are we doing when we talk about those figures? Because if a generation is raised to not know, for example, something is racist, if a, a generation rose up um, or, or grows up not knowing that something is deeply problematic, that it's misogynistic, it's racist, it's whatever, it's classist. H- how are they ever going to build the vocabulary to be able to interrogate the media that they read in the way that it shapes their opinions, right? And I think that this is a dangerous kind of whitewashing, mm-hmm. you know, a dangerous kind of bleaching that um, can can seriously blind us to real structural, real um, you know, uh, uh, systemic problems and issues 
in our world. So I look at at censorship like this and I think, uh, oh, fuck no. You know, I don't believe that censoring uh, literature, I don't believe that censoring authors is the action. I do believe that some authors, some books, some problematic takes deserve to be left in the trash heap of history, right? I do believe that figures like J.K. Rowling, you don't sanitize, you throw the whole fucking thing out, right? And I think that we have to be willing to kind of take these stances and say, if something is problematic, we don't work to make it unproblematic by sanitizing it, right? We work to address those problematic issues and potentially leave the detritus behind, right? Mm. Leave it behind if it's not moving us forward. Leave it behind. But don't sanitize it because I think sanitizing it erases our ability to really identify the systemic issues that we see. So, um, yeah, I this has been on my mind a little bit um, since I read this news, you know, as I, I think about all of the many ways that our literature is being censored and problematic. I worry, too, about, you know, who is the censor and, and who determines what gets censored? At what point in time do we start seeing the same sort of, well, we're trying to be inclusive by erasing LGBTQ characters or representation. Inclusive for who? Exactly. That's what I'm saying. Who are we being inclusive to? These are the sorts of things that I think um, really frustrate me about this stuff. So, yeah, that's my news. Those are my hot takes. My hot takes. Hot takes. How about some books? What you been reading? I've been reading a lot. We'll see if I can get my Goodreads to come up with this Wi-Fi. Sorry, we're both being quiet over here. Trevor's checking text messages while I'm trying to pull this up. Jeremy, cut all this stuff out. <laughs> cut out the silence. Give me, give me a sec before you start your news. Or before you start your reads. Well, Wi-Fi is not going to cooperate with me, so I'm just going to have to go off memory. So since the last time we podcasted, like two weeks ago, I finished the last two books of the Salacious Players Club that I told you about. Yeah, the Sexy Players Club. Salacious. Yeah, I know. Yeah. Um, Treat me like I'm an imbecile, please. (laughs) What? Uh, just, you know. And tell you what, you know what it was about. Uh, yeah, no, I do. Yeah. So it was just the last two characters. Oh, uh, got their yeah. Stories. Right, of, of the whole group yeah. that owns this uh, club of, yeah. like, uh, like sexy uh, kink meetup sort of. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, I read those two. On, on a spice level. On a, on a like, on if, if you were to, to say, uh, here is my... Here is my Korean dish. <laughs> how how many peppers is it? Um, well, most people I think they go from one to five spice. That's what I see. Sure. Uh, five being obviously the spiciest. Uh huh. I would say this. Five is sweating in public. Sweating in public. Yeah. Um, and and one is like. Meh. Meh. 
Um, three. A three? Yeah. So not sweaty in public. No. I mean, Just it, a little like <laughs> in no, public. It was good spicy. Don't get me wrong. Okay. But it was not like sweating under the collar spicy. I, I don't have a really good range for, for one to five spice. I feel I feel like we need to develop like an actual vocabulary for this. What do you mean? Like a, like a I just is just something absurdist. Like five is sweating in public, you know. Yeah. Four is is like, uh, but maybe take off the tie. Uh, maybe uh, stand over like an open an open uh, subway grate. Uh, that, well, those are hot. Those are hot. Yeah, the yeah. Gra- the grates are like. That's hot air. I guess I'm just thinking of the Marilyn Monroe, <laughs> like, oh, whoo, you know what I mean? Well, she probably burnt her yeah. ass because that's hot air. Oh, maybe. You're, you're, you're probably right. Uh, I feel like three three is a tee Um a, a two is, uh, a two is like, I don't know, a two is bland. A two, a two is is like is like white person spice on a on a spicy. Um, I would think two is a like spicy dish, and and one is like a one is like clutching your pearls, like ooh. <laughs> you think of one is yeah. <laughs> I was and say. one is like mm. and zero is safe for kids. Yeah. Yeah. I don't ever read zero. <laughs> or one. Uh, yeah, yeah. Or hardly two. So three was a tee. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of between three and four, but no, I got you. Yeah, but then like I've reminded you a lot. I'm I'm a pro at reading smut in public, so. <laughs> I mean, I can always tell, but yeah. Yeah, you can always tell, but. So yeah, even though I might give it a five, I could still read it in public. Okay, you wouldn't sweat in public. No. I got you. Um. So yeah, I read those two, and then. I oh yeah started, the return, by Rachel. Yes. You finished that. Yep, finished that. Yeah. And started Such Sharp Teeth. Yes, I'm by about, Rachel Harrison. I'm about 40 pages in. Yeah. We're, we're going to talk to Rachel Harrison all about her books. In just a few days. In just a couple of days. It's I'm just a couple of days excited. away. I'm super excited, too. Yeah. I've finished all, all four of her books now. And, uh, I, like, I, I think she's one of my favorite authors. I think she's in my, my top five. I feel like I've read something else that can't really be all that I have read, but if I think of anything else. Yeah, I mean, you got time. Yeah. Yeah. But I think that's all that I've read. My, I, I have been uh, remarkably bad at reading in the last couple of weeks. I read uh, Every Woman Knows This by Laure- Laurel Hightower. Mm-hmm. I don't know why I'm struggling with words right now, but... Uh, you're welcome. You're thinking about my spicy books. I'm th- I, I'm I'm a little. It, it's a, it's a four for me right now. <laughs> um, every woman knows this by Laurel Hightower. I I have already sung this book's praises. I sang the this book's praises to Laurel's face. Uh, but really, this is a phenomenal uh, collection of of sh- stories, and um, it was it was always going to kind of be destined to be one of the books that I was most excited about uh, when Jeremy and I kind of did our year preview like the stuff that we're most excited for it was on my top 10 books mm-hmm. and um, did, it, it did not disappoint I absolutely thought this book was phenomenal and um, I, I highly recommend it I also started the spite house mm-hmm. I have got nowhere with it because of the way that life has kind of blown up. I'm only about 10% in, 
but I'm liking it. Um, yeah. I I am already really connected with the main characters. I really want to see where they're going. I just met the Spite House, uh, and it seems just as menacing as I hoped it would be. So I'm really hoping to get into that a lot more because I think it, it's going to be a really fun read when I can really devote myself to it. And then I'm halfway through Red London uh, by Almakatsu, and it's starting to throw some real twists at me that I was not anticipating. New wrinkles for the main character. I already loved this book from the beginning, and it just keeps getting better. Like, mm-hmm. I'm really hooked on it now. And uh, I'll have it read in the next couple of days. But this is absolutely a book. I was already excited about it. Again, it was on my top ten list of things that I was most excited about that come in this year. Um, th- this book is, is absolutely spectacular so far. Uh, if you're looking for a spy novel, I mean, this is the one. I, I don't know that there are many spy novels like it. And it's it's just fantastic so far. So can't wait to finish reading it and give it the real final verdict. But um, I've really liked it so far. The, the spy craft is immaculate. It's incredible how uh, detailed I think Almakatsu can be about this story. Because it's about a, a woman who is trying to infiltrate a Russian oligarch's house to try to see if she can flip his uh, wife as an asset for MI6. Hmm. Um, it's, it's so it's so interesting. And while she's doing that, she's also trying to um, manage her own asset uh, for CIA, uh, a Russian guy who she's trying to flip um, uh, and, and see if she can flip some other, like, you know, kind of former KGB as a new Russian president has taken place because uh, Putin in this book was ousted for this new guy who's even worse. So fascinating book. Absolutely love it. Feels a little too real at times. I'm not going to lie. It feels a little too close to home. Yep. But, yeah, I mean, it, that's part of what makes this book so amazing. I can't wait to see how prescient it ends up being, you know, kind of in the long run. I think she really knows her stuff. So, yeah, that's what I've been reading. We wanted to do a little bit of a deeper dive on this uh, episode. This is going to be a little bit shorter, a deep dive, I think, uh, than we normally have. But we both read Heartstoppers, Volume 1, by Alice Oseman. And this is a uh, graphic novel published in the UK. And it, it actually originated as a webcomic um, about some characters that were from one of her first novels. And uh, it's kind of the backstory as to how they end up together. And so it is about two young men in a secondary school in England who start kind of uh, falling in love Mm -hmm. with one another. This first volume is really just about the beginning of their romance and kind of the confusion they feel of getting together. So I don't know how to have a a discussion about this without being really spoilery. So let's maybe just give a brief pause Mm -hmm. and then uh, we'll launch into spoilers. Mm Mm-hmm. Hit me with some spoilers, Caitlin. 
Well, as previously stated, I've already read this series. You've read the whole series. I've only yeah. read the first volume. Yeah. So I reread it today on my lunch hour just so I could yeah. recap with you. Yeah. It's such a delightful book. Oh, it, it is. It's so beautiful. And one of the things I love about comic books, this is what I, I brought to the table, the stuff I really wanted to talk about, is um, this notion of iconography. Do you know anything about iconography? Hmm. So the the concept of iconography is that you you present something in a story which is representative of an idea or a greater concept, right? So, for example, a classic example of an icon would be like a picture of a cup, right? It is not a cup in itself. It is actually the representation of a cup, right? So rather than even though we've drawn a cup, we've depicted a cup, it's not actually a cup. It's a representation of a cup. It evokes the idea of a cup, whether it be a specific reference to a very particular cup, right? Mm -hmm. Or just the idea, the general idea of a cup. That's, That's iconography in comic books. Forgive me. If I'm being super technical, because this is what my PhD was <laughs> all about, right? Is this the part last night where I was reading over your shoulder and there was like a little heart? Yes, that's exactly what I'm getting at, right? So Alice Oseman in these stories, right, so much of what she does is she uses iconography to express whole ideas with no words. Yes. And I don't just mean like, oh, the characters hug or something. It's like, no, she she gives you the entire, their entire emotional load through a single iconic exchange. So, and, and I say iconic in that, that sense of like evoking emotion, right? Mm-hmm. So there's a, there's a sequence when uh, the two, the two boys, Charlie and Nick, um, they, they are in high school t- together Charlie uh, is the, the he's the, the younger one, mm. right? Uh, the dark haired one. Charlie is gay at the beginning of the story and uh, he's already been outed to mm-hmm. school. So everyone kind of knows he's gay. He's in the middle of kind of a tryst, I guess, with another boy named Ben at the beginning of the story. Ben is maybe bisexual, but he's closeted. And he's been using Charlie to explore his sexuality through, like, makeout sessions or whatever. And really just being a dick to Charlie. Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, Nick, the other boy, he's a tall, strapping, blonde kid. He's a rugby player. Everyone thinks that he's just uh, the bro, the broiest bro who ever broed, right? <laughs> yep. And uh, he thinks that... Um, he's straight and he starts to kind of hang out with Charlie and this evokes a a kind of like sexual tension between Mm -hmm. the two of them. Um, a romantic tension because maybe it's not, it doesn't have to be sexual, but it is. Um, and, uh, and they, they start to fall for each other in, with these really complicated romantic feelings because Charlie believes that Nick is straight. Mm Mm-hmm. And Nick is not sure if he's straight or if he's gay, if he's bisexual. He doesn't know 
he, he's really confused about his sexuality through mm-hmm. this first book. And so as their friendship deepens and grows into real romantic affection for one another, um, they kind of have to deal with like all of the all of the extra stuff, the junk that, you know, comes with kind of falling for a person. And so there's a moment when they're sharing their day together. They're talking to each other. And Alice Oseman gives us this sequence where they are just in each other's company and they are talking, but they aren't talking because the speech bubbles contain just these little icons, like a heart, and a dog, whatever, right? And she uses this iconography to express alongside their facial expressions, their body language with one another, to express whole ideas, whole emotional states of mind, both extraordinarily cute and evocative of the very feelings of falling for a person. Yep. And I love it. I, this is what I come to comic books for. This is the sort of thing that just absolutely seeps into me. And I think this is beautiful art telling a story without telling a story, representing something where I can identify the feeling from an image. Mm-hmm. I think that's powerful art. And there were a couple of, of parts in this story that actually made me cry. I was like, I was really, I was very bleary eyed reading this book. Um, the first was when uh, Charlie, um, he he comes home after like a great day with Nick. I think it was that particular day. Yeah. Yes, the day with, when they're, like, clearly falling in love with each other. And Charlie comes in, and he looks just kind of... Forlorn and... Worn out. And his sister sees him. Yeah, his sister pops up, which is also quite funny. She's just like, poop! <laughs> and she's like, um, Charlie, are you okay? And uh, And he looks at her with this face, and he says... Like he kind of shrugs and and gives her that one of these like well, maybe, but he says, um, "I've fallen for a straight boy," and it is the most devastating, devastating feeling yeah. to see the emotional turmoil that Charlie is going for or or going through, because his feelings for Nick are so deep and so profound, and he just doesn't know what to do about it yeah heartbreaking i just it tore me up yep and then the second time was nick after uh uh i think it's around the same time right after this like wonderful day nick is unsure of his feelings for for charlie and he goes on the internet and he has like this all night like Google Fest, where he's Googling questions like, how do I know if I'm gay? Yeah. <laughs> Am I gay? He's taking all of these, like, personality tests about being gay. Um, and he, he just is so confused and conflicted, and he doesn't know what his feelings mean or how he should act on his feelings. He doesn't, he's just so unsure of who he is. And he he closes his computer and he pulls himself into a a blanket ball and he just cries because he he just 
he just doesn't know. What a cruel world we live in. I just bawled. I, I bawled and, I, and I, I, I feel like, as I think about this story, because this story is, is just about them falling in love, right? Um, it actually ends on a party. They, they go to a party, Nick and, and Charlie, and, uh, and it's super awkward. One of, Char- or one of Nick's former friends is trying to egg him into um, <laughs> meeting up with this girl that he used to have a crush on. She turns out to be gay. Um, he is like, you know, there's someone that I'm really interested in. He and Charlie have a, a, a very tender, very romantic kiss together. And then, then dickhead comes back. And then his friends f- find him and Nick is so worried about being outed. And he's still unsure of how he feels. And he, he runs away. And uh, oh, and just leaves Charlie. Oh, it's heartbreaking. He leaves Charlie in the in the ballroom of this giant hotel, all by himself. All by himself. It's so heartbreaking. It's so heartbreaking because I feel like you know, in retrospect, it's like, well, romance isn't that hard. It's so hard. So hard. Romance is especially hard when you're a kid. When, yeah. when you when you're a teenager, and you, it's so it's so difficult. Especially for a gay kid. Especially if you're a gay kid. And I feel like this is one of the things that really hit me is how necessary this this sort of book is, you know, because I do think that there are kids out there who don't who are like Nick. They don't know their feelings. They don't know how they're supposed to feel about their feelings. And 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 like Nick, you know, it's like, how do you find out? How do you how do you figure out? I mean, everybody in their older age, you know, kind of says just like, trust your feelings. You know when you know, right? But but that's not, that's easy to say with experience. Yep. It's easy to, to put a pin on your your sexual identity when you already know it. It's so much different when you're in the minute of or the moment of trying to figure out what works for you. You know, of trying to figure out who you are. In comparison Especially to in else. high school when you don't have anybody's support. Well, and this is the other thing, right? What What do you do if you're like Nick and you're you're unsure? Where do you go to try to find out? Where do you go to explore your identity? To explore these um, these ideas, these concepts. If you live in Van Buren, Arkansas, where that public library is trying to take away books. It, what, like, what do you do? Where is your representation? How do you find that representation for yourself to give yourself the kind of model to follow? You're screwed. It, it, it's it's so difficult. It, it, and this is why I think inclusive spaces are so important. Yep. And that's why I, I think this book is so important. I'm not saying that this book is going to go out and turn anyone gay. Nor am I saying that this is the end-all, be-all exploration of budding, you know, coming of age as a, a, a queer person. No, but this book could give some lonely high school kid who's questioning his sexuality some hope. Absolutely. I think you're absolutely right. And I think that's what's so beautiful about it to me. Because this is, you know, far from what fucking Republicans will tell you, this is not a pornographic book. No. 
This is a book about real human feelings. If this were a book about a straight kid and a a straight, you know, a straight boy and a straight girl, there's no way this this book would ever come under attack. No. Or under question. Never. But I I think you know because it's about queer kids like this is this is where we are now we we exist in a world where it's like it's not okay to have queer stories on this on book shelves. will never be in public libraries and schools I I don't mean to to say never because it is in public libraries and schools right now but it's being challenged and and it's they're trying to remove this stuff but it's so necessary it's so necessary to have these kinds of stories represented. And I think that's one of the reasons why I love it so much, not just because it's necessary, but also because it is a beautiful piece of art. Yeah. It is really exceptionally well-crafted. Alice Osman knows how to tell a story. I had a, some some layout issues just with where she puts speech bubbles because I was like, this is not how comics work. But um, that's that's me. That's the PhD in me being like this could be a little bit more uh, e- efficient in terms of a layout, but her iconography is superb, and and her ex- the expressiveness of her lines, of her characters, of her figures, so good, so perfect. Her style is perfect for a story like this to evoke that kind of just youthful charm of falling in love with a person and also her use of color to express the moments of darkness you know the moments of sadness the moments when her characters just don't know how to figure it out it's it's breathtaking yeah i completely agree i feel like i've just ranted so much <laughs> and uh and that's that's not always what i want to do i i mean what were some of the things that really worked for you about this book Oh, I completely agree with everything that you have said. She she knows how to evoke emotion. Uh, her storytelling is amazing. Um, I don't know what else to add to it. I mean, you've you've said so much, but yeah, I. It was just so cute, and heartwarming the first time I read it, and even more so the second time when I read it today. Um. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I just, I remember being that awkward kid and trying to figure out, not necessarily figure out my sexuality, but just figure out my feelings for someone, you know? And I feel like in a lot of ways, those feelings don't necessarily go away. I mean, I feel like it happens every time you meet a new person, mm-hmm. you know? I, I remember our first kiss at the end of that eight-hour date. In my car. In your car. And I went and I, I went to kiss you and it was very chaste. And I was like, no, that, I, I don't think that's going to cut it. <laughs> and I, I and I came back for another. And that was a good kiss. I remember that just I don't know, the, the butterflies, the feelings of of being with you and spending time with you and, and just all the many things that I felt as I discovered, you know, who you were. Because, uh, I mean, we, we talked for weeks before our first date. You know, I, I feel like we spent a lot of that time flirting with each other through messages, you mm-hmm. know, trying to feel each other out before we finally met for coffee. 
and I remember that day. I remember the feelings that I had, and uh, just kind of the the stomach churning, the the butterflies, the is she going to like me as much as I like her kind of feeling. And I almost scared you away because of my haircut. Uh, you did have a terrible haircut. Thanks, babe. <laughs> I liked you so much, though. I was like, you know, even though you had a really bad haircut that day, I was like, I, you know what? I don't really care because I think this girl is really amazing. And I'm not in it for the hair. I'm really glad that you're not in it for the hair either because I don't have any left. Yeah, I'm not in it for the hair either. What are you in it for? Your brain. Oh, that's that's my best feature. Yeah. Thank you. No. That's really validating. <laughs> <laughs> I think that wraps up um, some of our discussion. I, you know, I I just wanted to share this this book. This was one of your favorites. Yep. And uh, I'm and I so, told you you'd love it. I'm so glad you shared it with me because um, I did love it, and you were totally 100 percent right. I hope we do the others at some point. Yeah, let's do them. I'll add them to my TBR. We'll do it. We'll we'll come in and we'll talk about uh, the next couple of books. Oh, just for my listeners, or my listeners, our listeners, I was wrong. Volume 5 has not come out yet. Oh, um, of, of Heartstoppers, yeah. Yeah. That was, so, a, that was a heartbreaker. Heartbreaking. But I saw on Instagram today, or yesterday, she has started drawing Volume 5. Oh, that's so. Cool. Crossing my fingers. It's in a couple of months. A couple oh. months? Do you know how long it takes to draw a comic book? Well, let's hope she's been drawing and she's just <laughs> now like, oh, surprise. Because <laughs> let me tell you, if she waits until freaking December, you, I'm going to be mad. You might see it in two years. What? If she's just starting to draw it, you might see it. Are you serious? I am serious. Yes, it takes a long I'm time. I'm heartbroken. <laughs> No, I'm just heartbroken and mad. I'm sorry. I'm sorry to crush your dreams. They, they really <laughs> let me down. I'm like, I thought when they said it was February 7th and then it wasn't February 7th, I thought it was going to be like a couple months later. But, yeah. No. no I, don't, okay. I don't think so. I mean, it depends on how far she is in the process. But if she's just starting it, no. Don't don't count on it Damn for a couple it. years. That's how long these things take usually. Damn it, Alice. <laughs> We're gonna hunt you down. <laughs> <laughs> well, that wraps wraps up this episode of Slayhouse Presents. Thanks for listening in on our long-winded rants. We got some fun stuff coming up on the horizon next week. We've got Rachel Harrison. Uh, we're we're gonna be Skype calling with her, talking about. All of her many books, including Such Sharp Teeth, her latest, and uh, who knows, maybe we can talk her into a little bit of a preview of Black Sheep coming out this year. Mm-hmm. And then the, the week after that, we've got Casey Griffin, uh, who's also going to be Skyping in. Uh, I'm, we're talking about her latest book, Melinda West, Monster Gunslinger. Very excited to talk to her. I really loved that book. I had a lot of fun with it. And uh, we also have a Slate House Presents special, uh, Edith Nesbitt's From the Dead. That's the actual title. Uh, Our studio crew put together uh, an adaptation of that particular story 
that is going to be dropping on our feeds for free. So make sure you have subscribed. Make sure you follow us on social media. And uh, yeah, we'll see you next week. See you next week. (laughs) 